Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Would you guys pray with me once more? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the goodness of your word. And as we are nearing the end of our series in Proverbs, Lord, you've held up a thousand ways with a thousand different lenses, um, pictures of our heart, pictures which remind us of how much you love us, you care for us, and you want what's good for us, but also pictures of ways in which we are not easily lovable, ways in which we don't measure up to your standard, we offend others, But Lord, it's only the gospel that allows us to see this in a way which brings us humble joy. So we ask today that that happens as we spend time looking at our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last Monday, almost a week ago, some of the world's most trafficked websites, uh, like Facebook and Instagram, died for a few hours. And I'd like to think that there's no greater stimulus package to our healing world than to have no Facebook for five hours, a sort of digital timeout that we all sort of need to detox from that. In those five hours, I imagine the labor shortages that we have were hopefully filled, that workplace production spiked. And then maybe even perhaps, just maybe, that in the reprieve from our social selves that we are able to have some time with our own hearts, getting to know needs, seeing relief that's sometimes neglected. And on top of that, uh, near the end of the week before, there was the Facebook whistleblower. Not sure if you saw all that going on, but there was a lady who came forward, a former Facebook employee, who talked about all the potentially suspect and deceitful things in the tech giant's operation. And one of her claims was that Facebook's algorithms intentionally sow division and dissent, knowing that communities of hostility and anger foster more usage than communities of diverse acceptance. And social scientists are realizing that the internet relies on weaponizing and even monetizing our anger. It wants us not simply to hot click, but to hate click. But I imagine that during those five blissful hours of no Facebook in our world, that anger didn't disappear from the globe. That while Facebook was down, our hearts were still up. There were harsh words spoken, abuse executed, hostility spewed, but meaning comments made. Why? Because Facebook, Instagram, Fox News, CNN, don't make us angry. They provoke the anger already in our hearts. And this is why we need the wisdom of Proverbs this morning, which addresses the anger our world so desperately on one hand wants to criticize as out of place, but also celebrates in terms of its financial gain or its passionate appeals. And I want us to look once more at our key text today, which is Proverbs 29, verses 22 and 23. It says this, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. 
So I'm reading here out of the ESV, and you'll notice that this translation fleshes out um, a word in verse 22 in a possessive sense. He warns of a man given over to anger. And this Hebrew word behind it implies ownership, uh, almost like a landlord, a landowner mentality. He's speaking to the one who is given to, owned by, lorded over, possessed by anger. And today, with the help of Proverbs, we want to see who that person might be and to perhaps soberly consider that more of us are given to anger than we would have thought. Now, it's true that anger is something that God himself has. God was not always angry. In eternity past, as God existed as the perfect triune existence of Father, Son, and Spirit, that relationship was not sullied by anger. Jesus didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed one morning and decide to be angry towards the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't offended by God the Father not doing the dishes. There was only perfection. There was nothing to be angry with. Anger is not natural to God. But God became angry when sin entered the world because sin pollutes and perverts what God the Father wishes to protect. Sinners harm, wound, and cause catastrophic loss to those whom God wishes to love. It is good for God to be angry. In fact, the movement of God to save broken sinners is partly conditional on God's just anger against sin. Jesus, in Mark 3, heals a man on the Sabbath and is angry with the Pharisees for being critical of Jesus' healing instead of rejoicing in the salvation this man had. In Ephesians 4 and also in Psalms, it says, Be angry and do not sin. In other words, there is good anger, right anger, sinless anger, God-honoring anger, but most of us don't wrestle with being too righteously angry. In fact, I was thinking this morning, and maybe you can think of a passage and, and correct me with it, but I couldn't really, outside of the command to be angry and do not sin, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time telling us how to be righteously angry, but it spends a lot of time telling us how to not sin in our anger. And I think this is an important preface for our text today because when we start talking about our anger, something which all of us, I'm sure, feel at some level, it's easy to justify that and say, well, there is such thing as good anger. Jesus was angry, so I can be angry about things that Jesus is angry about. And that's true. But oftentimes we say that in the same way we say, there's such thing as good fats. Well, all we're doing is shoving our face full of French fries. Like, yes, it exists, but no, you don't struggle with eating too much of the good thing. <laughs> we struggle with consuming too much of a bad thing. Righteous anger exists. It's part of our salvation. It's something that a Christian should learn to cultivate. But anger is like our conscience in that we have it by default. We follow it, and therefore the question is not, am I angry? The question is, is my anger groomed, shaped, and pruned by Scripture and the gospel? One of the primary things we'll see in Proverbs today is just like Proverbs has always done with wisdom, spoken to our sexual life, our social life, our political life, our emotional life must also be brought in submission to the God who created us, to his truths, to be molded by his wisdom and not our whims. 
And so what we're going to do today is to look largely at a theology of anger as presented. Uh, we've, most of Proverbs, we've kind of gone through it exegetically, but this we're going to look thematically. What does Proverbs have to say about our anger? And we're going to see two things today. First, it wants to diagnose our heart, and second, it wants to treat our heart. Diagnostically, we're going to see two things. We're going to see first the faces of anger. That's where anger tends to hide in our hearts. And then we're going to see the fruit of anger. That's the harm done in our lives and in our world. And then lastly, God's wisdom is going to treat our anger by teaching us how to fight for anger. And there we'll see the fight of anger. And I want to begin today by looking at the varied faces of anger. One medical doctor described the physiological response our bodies have when we're angry is this. He said, respiration deepens, the heart beats more rapidly, the arterial pressure rises, the blood is shifted from the stomach and intestines to the heart, central nervous system, and the muscles. The process of the ailmentary canal cease. Sugar is freed from the reserves in the liver. The spleen contracts and discharges its content of concentrated corpuscles and adrenaline is secreted. Well, perhaps you, like me, didn't know those words were things until a few moments ago. We know what this experience is talking about, isn't it? In fact, if you have an NIV translation, it translates that word experientially. It says, the hot-tempered man. We might not know what corpuscles are. We know what it's like to get hot with anger. We know what it's like to feel the flash of wrath in our lives. In other words, we know what the angry person is. But do we know who the angry person is? And see, many of us don't consider ourselves to be angry until that anger is provoked. Very few people are just constantly angry, but there are certain things that provoke us. I, for one, really didn't think I was an angry person for the majority of my life. And then two months ago, I got a dog. (laughs) My wife and I often talk about, in pre-marriage, we tell couples that that marriage is just a bomb of sanctification. (laughs) It is good, but it's painful, it's catastrophic. And yet we also say that it's kind of like those downy fabric softener balls. It goes in the dryer, it's got sharp edges, and its goal is to just beat those fabrics until they're soft. And yet, it smells kind of sweet. It's made of this nice, tender, plastic material, and it's kind of cute. And then we say similarly that parenting is also a bomb of sanctification. But there, the soft, downy ball, which tumbles and and bludgeons us is replaced by a full-on meat mallet, which smacks your pride, slams your anger, and crushes your dignity. (laughs) It grows you. I've realized that having a dog is like walking out in the street to willingly get hit by a Mack truck, which will then chew on your children and pee on your floor. (laughs) The most dangerous thing to do is to preach on specific vices as a preacher, because God has a way of humbling you the week you preach it. And this week, I have been white hot with anger towards a 16 week old dog. My beloved Bowser has tried me. Last night, he was in the other room doing something, and I got up from the couch, and I told Sarah, I said, Jesus, I need your help. (laughs) I need your help. And for many of us, the source of our anger might be something that we're unaware of, but we know that life in this world will eventually coax it out of you. 
It will bring something of which you're unaware and make you keenly aware. But the wisdom of Proverbs we've seen is that God's wisdom is this wonderful reality of knowledge beforehand. It wants to equip you before this happens. And here he wants to show us these places where anger sometimes hides in our hearts so that God might say to you, this might be you, and this is how you should respond. Anger wears masks of various faces, and God wants you to be able to see behind them. And if I were to speak generally, in my time looking at Proverbs and other wisdom literature this week, there are four primary masks that wisdom or that, that uh, anger wears that it hides behind. And just as a diagnostic tool, I want to focus on these false faces so that we can see, hey, I might not consider myself an angry person, but it might be there more than I ever admit. And the first mask we see may be self-evident, and that is the mask of hatred. Look with me at Proverbs 15, verses 17 and 18. Better is dinner, a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Also Proverbs chapter 26, verse 24. Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. This might seem like an obvious connection, and perhaps for some of you, it is. But I think it's actually helpful for us to consider because how many of us, if we're honest, have someone whom we dislike or whom we hate, and yet we don't think of ourselves as primarily an angry person by nature? It's easy to chalk up our dislike of someone to their own faults. But did you see what scripture did here? It pointed back to your faults. It's connected to the deceit, the lies, the hatred in your heart. In Proverbs 15, this good and loving host is being contrasted with this bad host. And the good host is the Lord. And the bad host is the angry, loveless host of this world. The host who serves the best barbecue but conceals hatred in his heart. And this might sound, I'm going to get a little intimate here with you. This might sound silly for some. But I've experienced the ways in which disdain or hate for people Uh, fuels an unnecessary aspect of anger. There are some people, I can't even not smile, because it's silly, but I do it, okay? There are some people in sports that I just don't like their faces. For whatever reason, I know absolutely nothing about them, but their face makes me mad. And I know that sounds unfair, but let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And when my brain, unconnected to my heart, decides I don't like your face... I connect them with their team, and anytime their team is on, I'm frustrated. Anytime their team wins, I'm livid. And this sport I turn to to find relief is so convoluted and frustrating because I want nothing to even look like remote success in that weird face person's life. Our hatred brings out our anger. Jesus knew this when he connected hatred in your heart to murdering someone in your heart. You might not think yourself to be an angry person, but are you someone who holds on to grudges, who makes rash decisions on people based off a limited sample size, 
writing off individuals who haven't met your qualifications. You might be one given to anger. Even if you think you have control to limit your anger towards that one individual, the Bible says that it will spill out. To foster hatred towards one person may be a symptom of anger in your whole person. The first false face of anger is hatred. The next false face, the next mask is envy and jealousy. Look back with me at Proverbs 14, verses 29 and 30. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You turn forward to Proverbs chapter 27. We'll look at verse 4. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? So Proverbs keys on these parallels. When they hold two things together, we are to look and compare and contrast. And here, hasty tempers are paralleled with envy, which rot the bones. Wrath and anger are connected with the devastating tide of jealousy. What happens in your life when someone you know gets the thing you are pining for and longing for? On the surface, we're excited. We might even celebrate that with them. But don't we know that we can often respond in three ways, all of which are rooted in anger? First, we can become angry at that individual. What makes them so special that they can have this? This person hasn't had to work for anything in their life. Their life is just served to them on a gold platter. I would be content if I had that. What enables this lady to have that husband or this job or that family when I can see her faults so clearly? Who does she think she is? We become angry. Or we become angry at ourselves. We become frustrated. We think, why am I such a failure? Why can't I do anything right? If I would have just taken that job, if I wouldn't have blown that first date, I would finally have what I wanted. Why can't I get anything right in my life? Or perhaps more commonly, we begin to hate what we do have. When your friend gets the new car, the better grade, the new house, we immediately begin to see the faults in our cars, our grades, and our houses. We see how well-behaved so-and-so's kids are. We become more and more frustrated with the places in which our kids don't match up. And we become angry and upset Are you one whose shopping cart and wish list are always full? Are you one who wrestles with contentment and envy? You might be one given to anger. But now we turn to what is the most subtle of all the masks. And we actually step out of Proverbs. I cheated a little bit. I went to Solomon's dad, David. And in Psalm, in the wisdom literature, we see another helpful perspective And this is the mask of anxiety. Look with me at Psalm 37, verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And so here in the context of this psalm is the righteous man being opposed by the wicked. 
and the counsel of God is in your anger, do not fret, and in your fretting, do not become angry. It won't help. When things are hard, when life is fearful, your fretting quickly turns into anger. I am by nature a very anxious person. And I realize that when I'm worried or anxious about something, even the most innocent of interruptions into my thought process seems like a full-on act of aggression towards me. And I say, excuse me? Am I the only one worried about this? I'm in here trying to solve the world's problems, and you want me to change a diaper? Anger lurks behind our anxiety. It's the anxiety of life which causes us to hoard things of comfort and then to to protect the things we hoard with the moat of anger. It's anger that allows us to become angry at people or circumstances which cause our worries. And just as this psalm anticipates, we think that if we can just get on our high horse of anger and vanquish the external foes, that we will finally be free. But David comes in the midst of this anxious anger and says, don't believe the lie. It does not bring good to cause your anxiety to sin in anger to find freedom will produce nothing. Behind our anxiety are many things, weighty things, difficult things, but behind our anxiety is often the ravenous smile of an evil, angry heart. But of the masks that we've seen so far, there is one that wisdom literature speaks of most frequently, and that is the mask of pride. Consider the parallels in our key text today. Proverbs 29, verses 22 through 23. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Flip your page over to Proverbs 30, verses 32 and 33. If you've been foolish, exalting yourself. So the context is, and so this actually isn't Solomon anymore in chapter 30. This is another sage named Agur, and he's been talking about things which are out of place, to act not according to nature. And then he leads with this, if you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand over your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, pressing the nose produces blood, and pressing anger produces strife. Have you been one exalting yourself? Have you been one constantly thinking you know better than God? Constantly thinking yourself worthy of more honor than others? Then know that just as pressing milk produces curds, just as a punch to the nose produces blood, the pressing of your anger will only produce strife. If anger is in the heart, it is often pride, which is the armor. But look at how the Bible cautions our wrong view of things. Specifically in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, where Paul says this, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, speaking to the church, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned 
And so Paul here is saying that the Christian's first act is to look at the gospel which saves us and in light of that gospel reflection to then look at ourselves, to have that correct our vision, that our sober and objective view is in light of the mercy given to us in Jesus Christ, which means that pride, that is a heart which refuses to see us and each other through the gospel, is a fundamental perversion of how we ought to see the world. A prideful heart begins to see everything out of place. It's like a man who uses a false ruler to build his house and finds himself more and more frustrated as things don't begin to line up. It sets itself up for anger. I know one pastor who has a neurological disorder. And that disorder is, is that whenever his arms or hands feel pressure, his nerves tell his brain that his body is being harmed. The effect of this is whenever he shakes hands or even hugs his children, his experience is white hot needles poking into his skin. Pain is the disease, or pride is the disease, which inflames the flesh of our souls so that any pressure we encounter in this world immediately provokes our anger whether it was meant to or not, whether it is safe anger or, good, or bad anger. Prideful people expect to get things done as they see fit. And when it's failed to meet their rule or their standard, they're angry that they have been transgressed. They elevate themselves above others and expect that the world would serve them. And while we generally don't think that's us, how many of you have been locked out of your room or your apartment by your roommates. And none of you think naturally, oh, that's okay. They probably just forgot. (laughs) We think, how dare you? (laughs) I live here too, you slob. (laughs) How many of you have had your spouse take off for work with all the car seats in their car? And what we think is like, man, she was really hurried getting out the door. I hope her day calms down. We think, do you know who I am? Do you know what I had to do today? Can you imagine the world without my service? You have confined me and harmed the world. You see, one of the hardest hearts to look at soberly when examining our anger is the heart of the prideful person. Why? Because it is natural to pain a prideful person when they see what pride produces. The prideful person wants to be seen as the source of all that is good, all that is wise, all that is honorable, just, and righteous, the powerful mover who gets things done. But to see our anger is not to see a trail of flourishing, but to actually see the way in which your pride elevates, promotes, and creates foolishness. The very thing your pride wishes to protect you from, the humility of the Bible shows that you are participating in. Look at Proverbs 14, verses 29, once more. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. The prideful heart 
cannot stand a discussion on anger because it knows that anger produces what it fears most, which is to look like a fool. It cuts us at the very point we wish to be protected, but at the heart of our pride lay the source of our anger. And the Bible's gonna help us with this. But the Bible's not done yet, because maybe at this point, you say, what's the big deal? I can control it. No one's getting hurt by it. But this is where Proverbs shows us the fruit of anger. It wants you to see what comes out of the anger in your heart. What is the fruit from this posture? Well, the first thing we see in the passage we just read is a heart given over to anger is a life of shame. It is shameful to realize the foolishness of your anger, but it is even more shameful if that anger left unaddressed is called to light at the coming of Christ the King, who, as we read earlier in Hebrews, sees your heart for all it actually is. It is a shameful thing to be too arrogant to address your anger. But more than that, we see that anger produces endless frustration. Proverbs 19.11 says this. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is in his glory to overlook an offense. And I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but back in uh, chapter 29, verse 23, it talks about uh, the, the lowliness of spirit and the one who is prideful who's brought low. And here we see the one who has honor is the one who overlooks. It is so hard. I know we're done talking about pride at this point, but it is almost impossible to deal with our anger without laying low our pride. Because pride here, anger in this sense, means that a person given over to it, they can't overlook anything. They're unable to let offenses in this world not be taken personally. They have to correct what's wrong. They have to chastise for what was missed. They have to vindicate for what was maimed. And the problem of this is, while this sounds like the wonderful corrector of all that is wrong, you are not God. Our world is filled with broken, imperfect, struggling sinners To be given over to anger at every slight, at every sin, at every inconvenience is to be constantly frustrated, unable to ultimately trust God, but instead trying to play God. If you're unable to overlook anything in your anger or in your pride, you are the person who covers themselves in tar and runs through the chicken coop expecting not to come out looking like a fool. Everything sticks to you. And you come out looking like a clown. But there is peace promised for the one who overlooks an offense. Anger also produces constant strife between others and a transgression towards God. Back in chapter 29, verse 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. An angry person never learns to live at peace with others. Other people simply learn how to be peaceable in front of the angry person. But this is a false peace hiding the facade, or that's a facade of strife. There is always tension 
between people. Always people around you, dancing on eggshells, tiptoeing around your sacred cows, hoping to not upset you. And in your arrogance, you might think that that is peace, but the Bible says it is strife. To think that your roommates have finally found your anger to be at peace with them means that your roommates are just sick and tired of it and have started giving a false peace that's not really there and you've been alienated in the process. But more than that, anger will not only produce strife between people, but at some point it will make you, Solomon says, a transgressor. Our legal, legal world has terms of crimes of passion, knowing that one is controlled by, when one is controlled by their anger, that we do things we wouldn't do in our right mind. You would break laws you wouldn't normally break. But from a spiritual perspective, it is anger which inevitably causes you not to transgress the laws of man, but transgress the laws of God. Look at how James puts this in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Misplaced anger does not produce peace. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save you. Anger will not produce righteousness. We've talked about this much in Proverbs. Anger can produce lots of things to the bottom line of your business. Anger can produce lots of things when it comes to the superficial obedience of your children. But anger can produce nothing in the realm of righteousness. It will never get you where you want to go. Which is why we want to look at the masks of our lives and see where anger lurks so that we can treat it with the mercy of God. And what is this change to the heart of the angry person? This is where we begin our final point on treatment, the fight of anger. James gives us two quick battles we must have um, in this passage. The first is external. It says, put away all rampant filthiness and wickedness. But then it's also internal. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. In the course of this diagnostic exam, Are you angry? Have you said, that's me, and also that's me, and probably on Tuesdays, this is me? There's hope. There is hope in the midst of this. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that you will not feel judged, but it's that there's grace when we do with that judgment what Jesus calls us to do, which is bring it to his word. And see, the last thing we want to hear, and this is the best help the world can give you, this is the best help legalistic Christianity can provide, is to look at the angry person and say, don't be angry. (laughs) You know how to make an angry person angry? Say, don't be angry. (laughs) You're right, I was totally out of place. Thanks for that. But here the Bible offers meaningful change. It offers what in James? Salvation. It is helpful that you are promised to be delivered, that you might not no longer, that you might not be given over to anger, but instead you might be given over to something else, namely someone else. 
And to experience this salvation that James speaks of is to receive it with what? With meekness, the implanted word of God. Pride is such a fuel for our anger because it is meekness and humility, not arrogant hearts or self-righteous honor, which enables you to hear the implanted word. What is that word? It's the message of Jesus Christ. Look back at what was promised in Psalm or Proverbs 19, verse 11 and 12. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It is his glory to overlook an offense. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. For those of you who feel our hot-tempered anger, here is good sense for you. There is wisdom from above. And what is it paralleled with? The favor of the king. How are we to get a grip on our anger? We are to have a good sense of the king who turns away God's just anger towards our sin so that we might have the favor of this king. We first humbly see the ways in which we have offended, insulted, frustrated, and failed the perfect God of all creation. How do we begin the fight against our anger? We fight for a right perspective on what is truly angering. You see, James, later on, James 4, helps us know what this is. He says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? There was no Facebook then. There was no Instagram. There was no cancel culture. There were no news commentaries. But James says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? You see, we feel so slighted when people don't treat us as we think we deserve. And we respond to them with anger. But we are imperfect, broken people. But God is flawless, unsurpassed in beauty, innocent beyond measure, worthy of only affection, love, and cherishing forever. And in cosmic rebellion, we rejected him. We became his enemies. We robbed him of his glory. We harmed his fellow image bearers. We consume each other with wickedness. But while God was good and angry with us, he sent his son to die for us. Paul says in Romans chapter five that God showed his love for us in this while we were yet his enemies. In other words, while God was just to be angry with us, Christ died for our sins. Nothing kills our pride more than seeing ourselves through the eyes of God. The gospel is infinitely humbling because in it we see our faults and Jesus' perfections. It's hard enough to convince ourselves that our faults are serious, that the Bible has a category for our faults and it's called sins and the wages of sin is death. But often it's even harder to come to those who see their faults rightly and to convince them that there's more humbling left to happen. Because so many times we see our sin and we say, well, if Jesus helps me a little bit, I can clean up my act. If Jesus helps me a little bit, I can right these wrongs. 
But the gospel isn't 99% Jesus and 1% you. The gospel says you are broken beyond repair and it's only the perfect work of Jesus Christ which makes you whole. This is a message. The good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God is a message of meekness. It is a message of humility. How do we fight against anger? We look at what Jesus did to save us and it humbles us. It gets us comfortable with being offended because we offended the king of all kings and yet he sent his son to die for us. But secondly, we see what the Holy Spirit has done to fill us. Look with me at Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, these, and things like these, in case he didn't name you in that list. I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and with its desires. Where at one point we were defined by our anger, not only has that desire been crucified in faith in Jesus Christ, dead and buried with him, you have now been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit for a new kind of emotion. Now, when we hear that, we want it to be binary, don't we? We want at one point to have fits of anger, and now sometimes we're weak and we have fits of endless grace. <laughs> That's not how it works, is it? Jesus gives us freedom from sin here through the Spirit, but final freedom from sin doesn't come this side of glory. Instead, what we learn to do is we learn to fight against anger by leaning into the Holy Spirit, which is given to us by grace. This is a fight, but a fight with hope. I asked one lady the other day who's a new believer, and I asked her what has changed most since she was saved by Jesus. And she pointed to her anger. And she didn't point to her anger being gone. It's less for sure. But what she pointed to is now when her corpuscles get ejected to wherever they go, she's able to recognize what is happening in her heart. And she's able to go to God and repent and go to others and repent. She's able to be brought low with honor in the gospel. And the... Proverbs anticipates we need this. If you look back at Proverbs 14, verses 29 and 30, look at what it says. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. You see, it's only an understanding of the gospel that can give you this kind of tranquil heart to be slow to anger and quick to give lives to others. 
Seeing the word of the gospel slays our pride. It comforts our anxious heart. It reminds us of the riches we have in Christ, which displace envy. And it shows us the love we have, which crushes hate. Seeing the promise of the Holy Spirit grants us peace and pause we need to avoid and repent from anger. But lastly, there is a divine resource that God gives from a less than divine source. Look with me again at Proverbs 15, verse 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. How can we fight against anger? We can, in imperfect ways, quiet contention in our own hearts and quiet contention in the lives of others. We can help ourselves by being slow to anger in our habits by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can help quiet others in their own hearts. When it comes to quieting contention in our own hearts, I wonder how many of us willingly subject ourselves as a dog returns to his vomit to places and things which provoke our anger when we should just no longer go there. I know many men and women who have stopped watching specific sports because all they do is get upset when they watch it. The teams don't play at their level. I know some people who have stopped playing sports because they go to have a friendly game with their neighbors and end hating all of their neighbors. (laughs) I know people who have gotten off social media because yes, while social media connects us to people, we don't generally walk away saying, oh man, I'm so pleased with humanity. (laughs) We walk away frustrated, upset that people think different things, vote different ways and act differently. That sin, real sin, which God opposes is celebrated. And there's sometimes where we need to walk away from those things. But what does it look like in the lives of others to quiet contention? Much of what we want when we ourselves are angry is someone to be angry with us, isn't it? Isn't that exactly what the social scientists and the the web designers are banking on? That we want a community of people to be just as upset as us about the same things with which we are upset And so to be one who quiets contention is to be one who seeks to quiet contention in others. What might it look like for us to be a community of people who come alongside others not to inflame their anger, but to help them see it as the Lord sees it? There are countless things in this world which will provoke our anger, both right anger and wrong anger. But a countercultural community is a church of people who seek to quiet and crucify what sin wishes to inflame. This takes wisdom, right? We don't just go and say, well, stop being angry, dummy. It takes boldness. But this too is something the Holy Spirit gives us in meekness and in strength to quiet the hearts of others. So this week, Let us find the frustration of discovering anger in places in our heart that we didn't know it was so that we can find the riches of Jesus, which we perhaps were unaware of, as he calls us to him and changes us with the tranquil spirit given to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray as a people who are prone to anger But Lord, help us to see the anger that you lovingly poured out on Jesus so that we might be saved. Saved from sin. 
that is saved in a way that transforms our hearts and our interactions with others so that we can rest in your grace and in your mercy. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we peel off the masks of our heart and find things that are uncomfortable and sometimes disgusting, that we would find the good news of grace more comfortable and more exalting. We pray all this in your name. Amen.